Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Michael, and today we come to the end of our four-week-long series entitled Abide. If you're just now joining us for this message series, I want to step back for a moment and remind us of what we've been learning over the last few weeks. In verse 1 through 8 of John chapter 15, we were reminded by Christ that our lives are to be marked by faithfulness, by dependence, and by fruitfulness. In verse 9 through 12, Jesus reminds us again that his love causes us to lean into our relationship with God, to increase our obedience, our daily walk with him, and as a result, we'll find more joy in our Christian lives. Last week in verses 13 through 17, we were challenged to live every moment of our life, every moment, in response to Christ's love for us. Well, the more that I've read John 15 and the chapters before and the chapters after it, it's become more crystal clear to me that Jesus was accomplishing a very specific thing that night before his crucifixion. He was indeed shaping a new community that he would eventually call the church. And this church community has resulted from our relationship with Christ, our union with Christ, and our relationship with one another. We are a people, a called out people who are distinctly marked by our love for God and our love for one another. Listen, our entry into this community called the church is exclusive. It doesn't mean that we don't want other people to join us, but it's exclusive in the way we enter into that community of faith. It's rooted, that entry is rooted in the gospel. There's not a multitude of ways to come to relationship with God. There's not a variety of ways to become a true part of Christ's church. It is singular. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through Christ. This community that we are a part of not only possesses, exclu- possesses an exclusive entry, it does indeed demand ongoing conformity to a particular way of living. Christ has called us, church, to live differently, as we'll talk about this morning, from the way the world lives. And the more that we become like our Savior Christ, the more we will be different than the world around us, (laughs) and the more we will find ourselves in opposition to the world. The world will be opposing us more and more day by day. Today we're going to consider what it takes to live a life worthy of the world's hatred. Pastor Scott said at the beginning, we do not delight in hatred. We do not seek it. We do not really desire for others to hate us. But it is a result. It's a result of being a part of Christ's faith family. We're going to think this morning about how to abide in Christ, even in the midst of and in face of such great opposition. My hope this morning is that not only will we be warned of the world's hatred for us and be prepared to withstand it, I want us to be a motivated people, motivated to so identify with Jesus Christ and His church that our lives will truly be worthy of the world's hatred the world's opposition against us. I invite you to take your Bibles. Turn with me to John 15. We're going to look this morning at John 15, verses 18 through John 16, verse 4. But I only want us to read about six verses together as we begin. I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We do that here at First Southern as a way of reminding us that 
The Word of God is indeed the King's Word, and our lives are to live under submission and authority of that Word. John 15, we're going to look at verses 18 and 19, and then skip down to verse 1 of chapter 16. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world... The world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Verse 1 of chapter 16, I have said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, when this opposition arrives in our life, you may remember I told them to you. This church is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would teach us through Your Word, through Your Spirit this morning. May Your Spirit illumine Your Word to our hearts, God. I pray that You would make these verses crystal clear, Father. Make them simple to us this morning and cause us, God, to respond to them in faith and in obedience and in repentance. God, let us walk. Let us think. Let us love the way You desire in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I love pictures. My family sometimes chastises me because when we get home from a vacation, we're flipping through pictures. It used to be we would flip through stacks and stacks of printed pictures. Now it's flip them through the screen, right? I love that because they move a whole lot more fast, right? More rapid looking. I have family members who will look and gaze at pictures for, it seems like, forever. I'm like, can you just turn the page? But I love pictures. There's one picture, though, that I do gaze at. I take a long look at nearly every single day. It sits on my desk in my seminary office in in Louisville. It's right there in the corner. It's been there now in my office, wherever my offices were. That picture has been there now for almost 23 years. It's a picture of my beautiful bride. So on the day of our wedding, she's sitting on steps in the church just like this where we stood and made a commitment before the Lord to to be committed to one another until death do us part. And she's sitting there with her hands like this, legs up, kind of just crouched with the biggest grin you've ever seen. That picture is a moment in time. But every time I see it, it brings me back to that day. It's a memory for me that marks our commitment, it marks our constant love, it marks our abiding joy that seems to deepen day by day, year by year. Pictures have a way of telling us much about experiences in life. Well, this morning, if we were to be able to capture a picture of our country in the last decade or so, If we could just take one snapshot that encapsulated all that has been occurring in the last dozen years, we would find ourselves amazed. 
that picture wouldn't show the consistency that I'm reminded of when I look at that beautiful picture of my bride. No, it would show constant, massive, draconian change. Think about it. The millennials now surpass the boomers in numbers. Amazon Prime has been launched in the last decade. The first iPhone was uh, produced. Twitter began. Can you imagine life without any of those things? Maybe. <laughs> Could be nice. The first African-American president was elected. Politically, eight states have legalized recreational use of marijuana in the last six or seven years. In 2015, the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage. Nearly two years ago now, a little less, the Department of Education put out directives to the public schools saying that there must be an affordance for transgendered bathrooms. Culture is changing. Society is changing. The government is stepping in and stating a directive of the way it desires for our society to move. That picture would not only have to contain minimally those things, but in the same period of time, those who identify with Christianity has decreased from 78% to 71%. That just in the last eight years. The fastest growing religious group in North America is now those who do not affiliate with any religion. Nearly 25%. One out of four fellow Americans say, I have no religious affiliation at all. And that's up from 16% in just the last eight years. This morning we arrive at our text with a reality that our society is changing. We arrive at our text this morning with the reality that there is overt opposition against and even apathy for our Christian values that we so dearly hold. And it is both the apathy and, frankly, the aggression in America is on the rise and across the world. So church, listen. We must be prepared for even greater opposition in the decade to come. As I said a few moments ago, I'm convinced that part of what Jesus is doing in our passage is just that. He is preparing us. He is forming a community of followers whose lives will be distinctive, whose commitments will be different. Self-worship and self-satisfaction will no longer be the norm. It will not be primary for his followers. They will truly understand what he meant when he said, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. But what truly, but, but let me ask you this, what truly made this group of 11 disciples, that night even, a distinctive group? What was the catalyst in their lives that made them so different? Different enough that they would be hated and were indeed hated. Some even killed for their faith. What would be the grounds 
for their enduring faithfulness, even in face of such opposition. I want you to listen again to verses 18 and 19 for the answer. And as we do, let's take a moment to define a word that we see there. It's a word we see repeated throughout the Gospel of John and even in John's writings in his epistles. It's the word world. What does John mean most of the time in his writing when he uses the word world? For John, the word world means when human beings and human affairs, even the created order, is living in open rebellion against the Creator God. So when humans and when human affairs, when the structures of our society are in open rebellion against God, that's really what John means by the world. Jesus says in John 7, 7, I testify about it, about the world, that its works are evil. Look with me in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus doesn't leave us guessing here as to why the world hates Christians. He tells the disciples and he tells us that the reason those who are in open rebellion against God hates us because we are not in rebellion against Him. We are a people who have been distinctly called out. That's what the church is, a called out group of followers. We've been called out to, to live progressively conforming lives. Conformed to the image of God. That bring God glory in every aspect rather than lives that shake our proverbial fist at our Creator. In 1 John 3 verse 13 we hear, Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Listen to me, Christian. You should not be surprised that the world's systems are against Christian values. We should not be surprised that the world hates us and is in opposition against us. This hatred is because the world... Here, Don't miss this. You've got to ask the question this morning. Why does the world really hate us? This hatred is because the world wants us to join them in their rebellion. It's that simple. If I had to sum it up, that's really what we're saying. People who are living in open rebellion against God and God's claims of truth, they want us to join them in their rebellion. And when we choose not to do so, what do they do? They oppose us. But don't miss the reason we are no longer a part of the great rebellion. It, listen, it's not because we weren't once a part of the rebellion, for we were. We sang it this morning. By God's grace, a rebel like me and you, who were on a hell-bound race, have been rescued. Amen? It's not that we weren't once a part of the rebellion, for we were. But He's graciously chosen us out from the world. And He has rescued us, church. We're not on the same pathway that we once 
were. It's because Christ chose us out. That's why. It's not that we were never a part of it, we, for we were, but it's because God has rescued us. He's redeemed us. I'm mindful of Franklin Graham, the grandson of the great evangelist Billy Graham. He wrote his autobiography back in the 90s entitled, Rebel with a Cause. <laughs> in this work, he talks about how he once stirred, stood harshly against God and against his kingdom, but then God rescued him. He was a hell-bound man, yet rescued by the grace of God. And, and now his life has a cause to bring glory into, to God and to make God's name known and famous among the nations. His life is so indelibly identified with Jesus that it's hard for you or I to mention the name Franklin Graham this morning and not immediately think, of his gospel efforts around the world. The question presents itself for us this morning. Are we indelibly identified with the person and the work of Jesus Christ? We should ask ourselves this morning, is it clear to my family? Is it clear to my friends at school, my fellow teammates, my co-workers, my neighbors, that I'm no longer a rebel without a cause, but now I am redeemed and I identify boldly with my Savior? Church, we, we must reject the notion that our faith is somehow to be sectioned off to the private realm of our existence. Somehow that we're not supposed to be public about our faith. That our faith is to be enjoyed in the confines of our home or in the confines of the church. We've got to reject that. Our faith is to inform all of our life. It's to permeate who we are and our very essence. We're to be bold, church. We're to be bold about our faith. We're we're to hold our convictions about God, our Redeemer, deeply, albeit generously. But this notion that we're to remain silent and we're to remain marginalized in an increasingly secularized society, church, it's false. Think about it with me. We are children of the one true king. There is a kingdom that has broken in, and it's a kingdom that is coming to fruition. (laughs) And we are a part of it. I, I want to be boldly identified with Christ and his kingdom, not the kingdom of this world. This is where Jesus wanted the disciples to be in their desires and in their lives. And so it is with us. And just as he warns the eleven disciples that night before his crucifixion, so he warns us, as we are marked as children of God, we are to expect the world, that is the systems and the people who are in open rebellion against their maker, we are to expect the world to hate us. And we are to expect the world's opposition. Look at how Jesus says in verse 20, Remember... The word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Listen, those who preach Christ, 
those who seek to live godly lives, those who are being more conformed fully to Christ's image, will be persecuted. Jesus says, look at my life. Look at my own earthly experience and you will know what to expect from the world. The world has rejected me. And the world will reject you. We often seem surprised by the world's opposition. We ought not be, nor should we be surprised that it will continue in our own day. Jesus goes on to say in verse 21 that the opposition will arise on account of His name. Verse 21, but all these things they will do, all of this persecution, all of this opposition, all of this hatred, they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. Genuinely, the opposition that we experience, and that we will likely experience, I believe, in an increasing manner, is because the world continues in its outright rebellion against God. And listen, that rebellion, it's here to stay. Until Satan is forever bound. It's here to stay until rebellious sinners are forever judged. And it is here to stay until Christ's kingdom comes in its forever form. Well, the next three verses help us to understand how the world is without excuse for its rebellion. Listen, in Jesus coming and his performing great works and him speaking clear words, the world is indeed left without excuse, without pretense, is the word. Their guilt is centered, as we see here in these verses, on their overt rejection of God's revelation of himself in Christ. Verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not, be, they would not have been guilty of sin, but, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. Jesus is clear here. The sin that he's speaking of is not sin in general, for man is guilty of sin. Man has inherited a sin nature. We know that from the totality of the Scriptures. But Jesus is saying, listen... They are guilty of rejecting the revelation of the Father in the person of the Son. I've come. The greatest revelation that we have is the incarnation of Christ. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Christ came. He spoke clearly the words that the Father gave him to speak, he's told us. Not only that, but the Son came and he performed mighty miracles that pointed toward and glorified the Father. And Jesus says, listen, if I hadn't spoken those words so clearly and if I had not come in flesh and if if I hadn't performed those miracles, they would not be guilty of fully rejecting the immediate revelation of God the Father in Christ. But because I have come, because I have spoken, because I have worked miracles in their midst so powerfully, they are guilty of this sin of rejecting the revelation of Christ. Oh, church, it's exactly, it's exactly what the world has done today. 
they have outright rejected by and large the revelation of Christ. And they're living in continued rebellion against that great revelation. Verse 25 reminds us that sometimes the opposition that will come our way is purposeless. It states that they hated Jesus without a cause. Write down Psalm 69, verse 4. Go read that later. Psalm 69, the totality of it. It's a messianic psalm. But verse 4 speaks of David, King David speaks and he says, Listen, he says, the, 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 My enemies have opposed me. They have come against me and they have no cause for hating me, but they have done so. And if that's the case with King David, and if that's the case with King Jesus, then you and I can be certain. Those of us who identify boldly with Christ, we can be certain that we too will be hated without a cause. What does that mean on practical everyday terms? It likely means that at school there are going to be some people who hate you, who are opposed to you, for it seems for no good reason, just to make their day delightful. You ever been around those people? Maybe it's in the workplace. Maybe you're passed over. Maybe you're penalized. Maybe you're pressed into a corner for some reason. And it seems to be with absolute no purpose. Maybe it's someone in the community. Maybe it's a neighbor that seems to be pressing in without a cause. Verse 25, but the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. This warning is not just for the disciples, but it's also a warning that Jesus has provided for those who would believe in the days to come. And if we go over two pages in John, we find the high priestly prayer. Christ is praying. He's praying for the existing believers, this this community called the church, but he is also praying for all who will believe. And so he's warning not only the existing disciples, on that night before his crucifixion, he's warning all who would believe. That's us. He's warning us to expect great opposition from the world. On December 19th, St. Mark's Cathedral in Cairo, Egypt, was bombed. It set off what has become a very intentional, ongoing attack against the Egyptian church. The masked bomber in a video is heard saying, O crusaders in Egypt, this attack that struck you in your temple is just the first with many more to come, God willing. December 19th, 2016. 29 people were killed. 29 believers were killed in that attack. And the attacks have continued. In the last 45 days, seven Christians have been martyred for their faith in Egypt. The first of those was 35-year-old Wail Youssef. He was shot to death in an open market. These attacks have been carried out from what is suspected to be an ISIS offshoot. Those who are committed to their religious faith. Those who believe that they are doing service to God. Some 120 Christian families have fled the Sinai city of El Arish 
as a result of these attacks. This isn't just a word for the disciples in the early first century. It's a word to the church at large today. That night, the disciples were left with the question, will the persecution continue? And if so, how will they endure it faithfully to the end? How were they to face the world's hatred and survive? Well, the clear answer to the first question is yes, it would continue. We see that by the example and illustration I've just shared with you of the Coptic Christians in Egypt. The persecution and the opposition would indeed continue. Rebels stand against truth claims of Christ and His salvation for the world. And when the Spirit came, Jesus said He would continue to bear witness of Christ. And the disciples themselves would bear witness of Christ. And because of that bearing witness to a lost and rebellious community, they would oppose the believer's witness. Verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father... The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. And you also, you will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. You remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, listen, He says, you remain here. But when the, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will give you power and you will be my what? Witness. By the end of the first century, the term witness, martyr, had been linked to death. You, you will be my martyrs. That's what Christ, in essence, said. And it came to be true for many of those men in that room that night and on that hillside there in the vineyard. Listen, church, with continued public witness comes continued opposition. Every time we point to Christ and His kingdom, the kingdom of darkness is aroused. Did you hear that? Rebels do not like it when we point out their rebellion. Then Jesus tells us in John 16, verse 1 through 4, why he has taken the time to warn his followers of the continued opposition. Look with me in verse 1, and we will conclude this way this morning. I have said all these things to you. Why? To keep you from falling away. Oh, they'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you thinks he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that so that when their hour comes, when it happens, you will remember what I have told you. Jesus, Jesus doesn't want us to be a, a community that recedes. He doesn't want us to be a people who stray. He doesn't want us to be a people who huddle up in fear and circle the wagons. He wants us to remain bold, church. He wants us to remain winsome in our gospel engagement. He wants us to deeply hold our biblical convictions, especially in the midst of the hostile culture in which we are living this day. Listen, all, all that we believe that the Bible teaches is being assaulted. 
We have the choice to either waffle and stand for nothing, <laughs> oh, or depend. Depend upon the promised Spirit of truth, whom Jesus said would come and bear witness of Him, and who would empower us to bear witness of Him. Listen, we need to be a people who depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit whom we have indeed received. And we are to be a people who stand upon and rest upon the words Christ has provided for us. Oh, it's not that we're going to fall away from our faith in Christ. It's not that we're going to lose our salvation. That's not what he means there. But if we're not careful, church... As the opposition comes, as the hatred arrives, as, as the pushback on our core values barrage us, we're likely to lean back, quieten down, and become timid. Church, that's not what Christ is calling us to. He's calling us to a bold, faithful life and witness. May we, may we be a people who live a life worthy of the world's hatred. May we live a life that proclaims God's truth to a very confused world. May we live a life dependent upon the Holy Spirit, dependent upon Christ's words. What Jesus, I think, had been attempting to teach the disciples that night and teach us in the last four weeks is this. Be a people who abide in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love and grace. We thank you for the privilege, the joy of being called your children. Father, we thank you that through Christ you have redeemed us, you have rescued us, you have snatched us out of the kingdom of darkness, you have you've chosen us. And for that we are thankful. God, give us the boldness to live for you, give us the heart, the affection to love you more deeply. Give us, Lord, not only the mind, but the desire, the will to live more obediently. Father, may our lives be conformed to you and your word, and may our mouths boldly speak the truth of Scripture. Father, we don't want to just go out and shake our fist at the world. We want to take the beauty of your word and spirit to them. Father, may our lives, may our lives and the gospel you've given to us be a fragrant aroma to those who are being saved. And Father, would you call more to salvation in Christ through this church and through us individually. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Church, we practice revelation and response throughout our worship. Now's the time for you to respond. Don't know what all the Lord has provoked in your mind this morning but I pray that you would respond faithfully and obediently. Hear the truth, respond to the conviction of heart, 
and walk faithfully and obediently and repentantly in the right direction. That we would indeed be a distinct community of faith in this place. I want to invite you to stand this morning as we uh, sing a a hymn of response. And as we sing, you respond. If you need to come to know Christ, come and ask this morning for Christ. If you need to be baptized, you know Christ, and you need to go public with that, come. Tell us that. If you need to join this fellowship, you just need a brother to pray with you. Come this morning. Let's sing. Let's respond. The altar is available.